To know where the internet is going, you have to know where it's been. Every episode will examine the sites, terms, and personalities that have defined the online world. So strap on your chrono belts, time cadets. It's time to take a trip to the Old Wide Web. Episode 5. I was a teenage sissop. Hi, I'm Bill Meeks, and welcome to another episode of Old Wide Web. I'm here to teach you the history of the internet. Whether you're a newbie or an old tech head, I'm going to give you an overview of how the internet evolved into what it is today. In today's episode, we'll be doing things a little different. I sat down on Skype with Brian Lunduk to talk about his history in the BBS scene, and it turns out there was so much material, he ended up taking over both segments of the show today. So settle back and enjoy some war stories of BBS past and present, and you'll also find out why BBSs are our future. BBS, if you don't know, stands for Bulletin Board System. And if you had a modem in the 80s or 90s, you probably tried at least one. You'd load up a terminal program and dial up to some random computer, where you were presented with a text interface for chatting, playing games, and downloading files. But whose computer were you connecting to? Most of the time, it was probably some nerdy kid. Take one Brian Lunduk, a software developer and host of the Linux Action Show and Beer is Tasty. Before he started his BBS, who cares, he thought his life was pretty dull. I was born a very nerdy little boy in, uh, in a very big city and, and well, without, uh, without BBSs or without the internet, it was very hard to hook up with other nerdy little boys throughout the city. So, you know, we were very, we were like isolated little nerdy islands all over the place. So BBSs came to me very, very early on. Uh, I started, started dialing into BBSs when I was, I believe I was about 11 years old, uh, when that's kind of start to became a, became a thing. It was in the, uh, the very late eighties there. And, uh, I started dialing into every BBS I could find with my old trusty 1200 baud modem where the text scrolled across the screen at a glacial pace. Uh, but I was still very, very impressed by it because, uh, well, my friend actually had a 300 baud modem and I thought that's what BBSs would, were like. You know, beforehand, it was it was isolated. It was lonely. It was uh, for a nerdy guy in a bedroom. You were all by yourself. BBSs changed all that. And that was that was pretty exciting at the time. BBSs were like little communities for people who felt cut off, like Facebook without your grandma. Computers were coming into everybody's homes, and for kids like Brian, the new machines held infinite possibilities. I got into computers really mostly because I had to. I was I was a nerdy kid, and and the the options were were limited of the things that I was going to be the most excited to do. Uh, I was either going to become a an archaeologist and dig up dinosaurs, or I was uh, I was going to turn into Indiana Jones somehow, which I just didn't see happening because, to be honest, I wasn't that good with a whip, and I didn't think I was going to be able to run or jump as much as uh, Harrison Ford did. So I I. I 
I had to become a computer nerd. I mean, it was it was there, and it just it had to be tinkered with, uh, no matter what was in front of me. Uh, I had a friend with a uh, with a Commodore sixty four when I was a kid, and uh, of course, I didn't have one because you know my parents were were cheap <laughs> and and not computer nerds. So we were a computerless family for many years. And that friend of mine in this about the mid eighties uh, had a Commodore sixty four, and it was it was amazing. It was stellar. It was it it changed everything for me. Uh, so when we got our first, you know, x86, we got our first 286, uh, big old herking monolith of a rig, a uh, big giant gray rectangular box with literally a power switch that was a giant red lever on the side that you, to turn on, you pull up and it would just go cha-chink and clang into place. And the whole thing would word to life, take about two minutes to boot up, despite the fact that it was just booting into a very uh, old version of DOS. And it was amazing. It was awesome. Computing just had to be part of what I did. Communicating with computing just seemed all too natural to me. So that was that was obviously what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be spending time networking up my computer to other people's computers. I didn't even care why. It didn't matter why. It didn't matter what the results were so much as we had to do it. It had to be done. Well, a trip down nostalgia lane is always fun, but why bother? BBSs are pretty old news. Really, Brian, what's so special about a BBS, and why are we still talking about them 25 years later? BBS is still maintain a draw to me uh, that may may have disappeared for a lot of people. Once the internet came along, a lot of people saw BBSs as archaic, and uh, you know you have these little text-based terminals, these little ANSI and, and uh, TTY terminals that people are dialing into, and it, it's it's old school. And it, it, now that we have web browsers and streaming video, BBSs just don't just can't compete on that level. But there's something about the simplicity of it all. There's something about using your imagination and and focusing bbs games are a great example currently you can play world of warcraft online and that's great you can be guild mates with you know a thousand of your buddies and storm whatever random castle to kill a dragon it's it's very exciting the graphics are very very cool and it, it looks very very awesome or you can play an old bbs game that is a very simplistic thing uh, the legends of the red dragon exitilis usurper there's all these old games that many people probably won't even have heard of but they're simple they're text-based they inspire you to imagine what the world is like and they encourage your interaction with other people more so than even the the current modern games because that's really all there was when you hop into say a game like legend of the red dragon legend of the red dragon is huge and everyone on a bbs played this game all throughout the 80s and into the 90s there was so little to do in the game that you had to interact with people and the crazy thing was there was very few ways that you even could interact with people but we found a way, we made it work, and we, we forced ourselves to interact with all the other people on the same BBS, and it was, it was very exciting. The other real big thing is kind of stemming from that is the, the aspect of a community. Back in the day, I mean, there was no, we didn't have DSL lines and cable modems and, and Fios and everything else. We just had really slow analog modems. In some cases, the kind that you literally pick up your, your receiver and, and your handset and put it into a cradle in order to be able to dial up. And that was your connection to what? To what exactly? You were connecting to literally some guy 
about two miles down the road from you to his den or his basement or his mom's basement, which was too often the case, um, which is my case for a long time. Uh, and you were dialing into something local, to something that someone created in their own home. So you were really becoming a guest in their home in this world that they've created for you and their friends and, and for everyone else in the community. And it kind of brought everyone together. All of the nerds could just flock to this one virtual place, uh, not all at once, mind you, because usually BBS has only had one line because everyone was very cheap. So you usually had to wait and wait and uh, redial and redial with constant nagging busy signals until it was your turn to get on to a particular popular BBS. But it, it built this sense of community, literally spawning things like BBS meetups where people would be like, hey, you know what? Let's get together for pizza in real life. And you'd get to, you'd go there and... And in this case, I was a kid most of the time. So I'd go down with two of my friends who were also kids. And the three of us would show up at a pizza parlor that we'd walk or bicycle to. And there would be a few other kids there. But then there'd be like a 30-year-old guy there. Then there'd be like a 60-year-old guy there. And everyone would have very long beards except for us. It was very interesting. But everyone was very nice. Everyone was very nerdy. And everyone was very supportive of each other. And it built these great little nerdy communities kind of throughout the throughout the U.S. And, and Canada. It was just it was just a very, very cool time. Cool. And uh, when you were talking about uh, Legend of the Red Dragon there, that way that was always my favorite game, just because like if, if you got on the right BBS, uh, they had they had all the different mods for it. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, heavens, yes. And those games like Legend of the Red Dragon kept Brian committed to the BBS scene so much so that he decided to start up his own. I wanted to start my own BBS because, for one, I hated waiting to get onto the other BBSs. I wanted to actually get on whenever I wanted to get on. And two, it was like a power trip, man. It was being able to host your own BBS. People were calling in. They wanted to play your instance of Trade Wars or Legend of the Red Dragon or Baron Realms Elite or whatever whatever games they wanted to be playing. They were calling in to play your hosted version of that game and you had all of the system operator tools all the sysop tools were there at your command to edit player accounts edit the game make it your own cheat if you want to which i tried not to but you know i was a kid of course i cheated a little bit you know so that was that was really a lot of it, it was a power trip it was the ability for a young nerdy kid to take control of a domain make it completely his own and people bowed to you it made you feel godlike it made you feel in control and while it was nerdy and it was purely imaginary it was still a really really cool time so that's really what drew me into it originally once i got going it became the creative side of things it became the excitement to build a virtual world that was really my own, both graphically and look and feel wise to exactly what features are there, uh, to the games I wanted to play, to building the kind of community that I wanted to have around. I, I fostered an environment where the people that I would like to chat with or like to play games with would be encouraged to call back. And so it would make a friendly, enjoyable, supportive environment that, you know, as a nerdy little little white boy, you might not necessarily get at school all the time. It started out as a real power trippy thing and it just kind of became a way to have a supportive creative environment. And then after a while, it became a thing that I did and it's hard to just stop doing it. But if you've never been around one, an 11-year-old computer nerd's attention is pretty fickle, which meant the face of Brian's BBS changed pretty often. 
I've had many BBSs over the years and I've tried to always give them a different name and a different style and a different attitude. The first BBS I ever run, it was named Who Cares? But we we were young kids and we thought we were being funny and awesome. So we spelled it wrong. So we spelled it like hook, like a hook in your hand uh, and heirs like an heir to the fortune. Uh, and we thought we were being very funny because it, it sounded different than it was spelled. And uh, that's that's what we named it. And that one ran for, oh, a good two years or so before that went offline. Uh, from there, I had probably five or six other PBSs and I I could not tell you what most of them were named. I know that one of them had to do with a pirate ship, but I can't remember what it was named. A good friend of mine made some great ANSI artwork uh, for it uh, that I long since lost uh, that died on an old 386 of mine that went belly up many years back. Well, setting up a BBS was no easy task for a kid on a budget. How does a teenager become a sysop? We'll talk about everything from software to equipment meltdowns to Star Trek trolls when we come back in a few minutes for part two. Meek's Mixed Media offers video, animation, web design and programming, motion graphics, if you have a project involving audio, video, or the web, Meeks Mixed Media can help you. Need individualized attention from a media pro with over five years of professional experience? Click on Hire Us at MeeksMixedMedia.com or send an email to contact at MeeksMixedMedia.com to get started. Meeks Mixed Media, welcome to now. Welcome back. I really missed the BBS days. Browsing through file lists, deciding if the one megabyte JPEG was worth the time it would take to download. The thrill of chatting with anonymous people in your area. Gotta love an organized system in plain text. And don't worry, we'll get back to Brian's BBS story in just a minute. But before we get to that, let's listen to another one of your first online memories in a segment I like to call Memory Allocation. This one's from a friend of mine, Roberto Villegas. He's the host of the My So-Called 8-Bit Life podcast, which you can find at mysocalled8, the number 8, bitlife.com. He actually recorded this for me while I was on the podcast as a guest. So you can actually hear this whole thing unedited along with the rest of the episode. It's episode 21 of My So-Called 8-Bit Life. And for the curious, I also appeared in episode 4. Downloading memory. Processing. Processing complete. Dispense memory. Uh, my earliest memory of the internet was I am... I think I was, I don't even know how old it was. I was definitely young. Uh, and we didn't even have Windows, you know, I was on a DOS shell. I remember logging into this system and playing this puzzle game online. Uh, at least, or like, what I thought, well, at least what I would know would be online. You know, it was a paintball game and I was lagging. I couldn't have a connection. And literally, literally the connection was 9600 baud. For that time, it was fast. And, and that's saying something. But I remember, lo- and it was funny because he would charge you by the hour and he would actually charge you extra if you played the game. And somehow my parents let me play the game the first time. And, you you know, I played it for a bit and totally lagged out and I couldn't play it anymore. I remember that always being in my head like, wow, this is awesome. This is really amazing. And this is kind of cool. I'm playing a game with other people. And 
and they're not even in the room anymore. They're not even in the room with me. This is cool. I think my parents found out and kind of freaked out that I was doing it and stopped me from doing it. And I was kind of mad. Beyond that, my uh, I remember, you know, in the 90s, I was part of this thing called, how was it, Future Kids or something like that, where I did, like, web conferencing before, like, web conferencing was even, like, a term. And I was doing video conferencing over, a, like, an old, like, a Mac, like, you know, uh, a Mac 9. And we were video conferencing with some guy in California. We're in Michigan. And I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. So, I, I, for sure, my earliest memory is Prodigy. But the memory that stays in my head more is definitely that, that first time that I saw video conferencing and, and seeing what that that meant and, and how that worked out and being just able to talk to somebody that was clear across the country and seeing a video of it on a computer. And that was just amazing to me. To know that where we've gotten now definitely adds for just the amazement of how we've gotten to this world. I mean, I'm, I'm always aware that I live in a world now that... If I want to, I can call somebody in Europe over Skype. And if I want to, we can turn video on. And that I'm able to stay connected with anybody I want to at any given moment at any given time is so, so much more interesting of a world than I could have imagined. And, and to know that I got to test a lot of that stuff out early was something so magical back, you know, in the early days that's, you know, kept me going kept me on this this big giant web like i'm always aware of what world i live in and what world i'm in everything i'm doing now my 90 my 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 younger eight-year-old version of me would just be you know wide-eyed and amazed it's time for part two of our in-depth interview with bbs enthusiast brian lunduke when we left Brian's story, he'd decided to create a BBS. Being as geeky as I am, I had to get a breakdown of his setup. First BBS was run on a 286 with 640K of RAM and a 50 meg uh, MFM hard drive. Big, whirring, spinning, loud beasts of a hard drive. Back before IDE was was ever a glint in, in our granddaddy's eye. Had an external uh, 2400 baud US robotics modem. Really glorious little beast with a nice little speaker with a little volume knob on the side. It was connected up over, uh, over the COM port, so it was plugged in externally. And I had it sitting on my desk about two to three feet away from my bed where I laid as a kid. And I had a nightstand right in between it. And I stretched that that COM port cable as far as I could. And I put the modem on that nightstand right next to my pillow where I slept at night. And this is ridiculous. But after a while, it became a soothing way for me to go to sleep at night. I turned the volume knob almost all the way down. And so that that traditional modem dial-up connection carrier tones, that wee that I'd hear that and I'd be like, yeah, that's awesome. That's my BBS being cool and being used. And it would be, it was, it was a reassuring thing. Um, so that, that was what I was running there. It was running under DOS. That was, uh, that was the OS at the time, which was just atrocious. And, uh, I was running that BBS under a BBS package called World War IV, uh, WWIV, which was which was fairly popular at the time. Uh, there was a lot. I mean, there's a lot of big BBS packages. I mean, from Wildcat to Virtual Advanced and and Major and and all the other big ones. But I was running a World War IV at the time. Later on, I moved over to VBBS, Virtual BBS, and ran that for for years and years and years. A lot of people wanted to run multi-line BBSs, or if you didn't want to run multi-line BBSs, you wanted to first you 
wanted to be able to allow one of your callers to be online and you to be online as well doing something different. And OS2 allowed you to run many DOS sessions at once. It multitasked really well. Uh, had all sorts of cool little tools for BBS uh, sysops. And I moved over to B, uh, VBBS and OS2 and a little 486 that lasted me for years and years and years. Brian's hodgepodge setup worked, but it wasn't always perfect. He had his share of technical failures while running the BBS. Oh, heavens, we had all sorts of technical failures. Almost wall-to-wall technical problems. As you can imagine, since it was a... It was an old 286 that we started running it on with an old MFM drive. Well, of course, that MFM hard drive failed. Now, it was only a a, a 50 meg MFM drive, a little 50 megger. And you think, well, 50 megs, come on, that's nothing. But back then, how on earth do you back up a 50 meg hard drive? We have we have little five and a quarter inch floppy disks here. I mean, what are we going to do? I mean, and, and I was on a budget. I was a little kid and I'd thought ahead enough to back up some of the like the game files so like i had a a copy of legend of the red dragon running backed that up because that fit onto a floppy what i forgot to do was to back up the actual bbs user accounts database so it didn't matter that i backed up all these games all all the game information because well there was no user accounts to be tied into and therefore all the games were kaput anyway so we when when that drive failed that was that was uh that was a devastating uh moment but you know it's it's those moments that force you to upgrade a new hardware, right? So we we got a, we got I got my first uh, IDE drive after that, and that was pretty exciting. And uh, it wasn't much bigger, but it was way too expensive, and I had no more money after that for about a year. But we were back up and running again. Now, once once we made the switch to running a multi-line system, that's when things went were very, very horribly wrong because we were trying to do something that was much more complex. We were we were constantly running into issues where the entire OS would hang and we'd be offline and the phones would just be ringing or power supplies would fail. This happened all the time. And so what what pretty much all BBS sysops had back in the day was basically what we called a busy switch. If nobody's tried this before, it's still great to do if you've if you've got a, a standard analog phone line still, which probably you know three people out there do. Is you take a you take a little phone jack, you take a little phone cord, cut it, strip it at the end, and take the little two wires that stick out and twist them together, and then plug them right back into whatever phone jack you want, and ta-da, the circuit is busy. Anyone who calls it will just simply get a busy signal, which, if you're running a BBS, is way, way better than it just ringing and ringing, because if people get a busy signal, they try again. They get excited. They want to call back to the super busy BBS. If it just keeps on ringing, they assume the BBS is down. They open up the, the, the paper, their local paper that has the list of BBSs in it, which every city had had one of those pretty much. And they start crossing off your BBS from their list. And that's that's the death blow to any BBS is getting crossed off in pen of those, uh, those little BBS lists that people would get. So BBSs were very local. And to be successful, you didn't need huge numbers. The maximum number of users on the BBS is really hard to to remember how many total people logged in ever. But in a day, honestly, the most popular time we had 
we'd be talking maybe 25 calls per phone line, whether it was a single or multi-line system. And that was about as popular as it ever got. I know some of the really big popular systems out there, the big popular BBSs, they, they'd manage more than that. But, you know, we were just kids. And so we, we, we were really happy if we got that number. Normally, really, we were happy if 10 people called in a day. But more is always better. And Brian assumed that what he liked about BBSs, mainly the games, would attract even more callers. Me and uh, my my good friend, who was my co-sysop, <laughs> we we scoured every BBS we could find, downloading every BBS door game that was available. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, uh, door games are called door games because they there used to be there was a there was a BBS package called PC Board back in the day. And PC Board used this file that called door.sys. And door.sys basically uh, created a, uh, it was a little, it was a little, basically it's called a drop file. So it says, okay, this guy's calling on this COM port at this baud rate. And so when the BBS would shrink out of memory and the, it would say, hey, game, load up, it would point at that particular Dorisys file and say, hey, door.sys, you know, that's that's where all the information is. Talk to that guy. And so they became known as door games. So so we would have, you know, 80 some odd of these door games, most of which were unregistered versions. So they'd have, you know, uh, limitations and they'd show big nag screens to all of our users. And, and that just annoyed the hell out of everybody. But uh, we thought that was going to make us so mega popular because we'd have more games than any BBS ever. And it was it was going to be very exciting, but didn't quite work out like that but you know having more users than any bbs ever brings its own set of problems users make a service worth using but brian realized quickly there were some strange characters on the other end of the line we had a couple of people that called in that were our friends. These were people we knew or went to school with or or had become friends with through the BBS. And they were great. You know, they were kids our age or within, you know, five, six years of us. And it was a lot of fun. Then we'd have some old guys who wanted to have philosophical discussions. And then they'd go into the message board and we'd, we'd, we had at the time a couple of message networks that we were part of, uh, which a little backstory on that, uh, things like uh, FidoNet we were a part of, which FidoNet was really just like... I don't know. It's almost like you could picture it like Usenet, only BBS to BBS. Basically, you have a bunch of message forums and, and they were all interconnected and synced up between all these BBSs every night at midnight. And these older guys would hop in and they'd want to have these, these philosophical and political discussions, not knowing that the people filling up the BBS were between the ages of like 12 and 17 on average. <laughs> Whenever you have a medium the internet included, where it, there's so much anonymity, where someone sitting in their underwear in their room can connect to the world and comment on things. You invite people who may not be all that, how to put this nicely, all that with it, maybe a little nuts. Uh, you have a wide variety of people who wouldn't normally be like socially the most, uh, the most comfortable. They wouldn't be comfortable out in social situations. But in this situation, they're very comfortable. What you get was people that just acted just crazy combined with people who were taking it seriously, combined with kids who were just making fun of everybody. And you had a horrible volatile situation where people end up just yelling at each other after a while. We had one, one lady who was a really big Star Trek fan. And whenever she felt like someone disagreed with her, she would log into my BBS and every other BBS in town 
and leave page after page after page of Star Trek themed, basically flame wars, where she would pretend to be the captain of some strange vessel and she was yelling at some other person because they did some imaginary Star Trek thing against her. And I'm a big Star Trek fan, but even in that, I was like, okay, this is a little nuts. You get that sort of thing, but that was part of what made it colorful and fun. And, and it was part of the culture almost. We, we ignored that stuff most of the time and most of the time it wasn't a problem, but it still kind of made it exciting and fun and interesting. But regardless of how many Star Trek role players you have, time marches on. And as Brian got older, he found he had less and less time for his BBS. I put the final nail in the coffin of the final BBS I was running back in the day, the old classic dial-up system, because I felt they were dead and I felt that BBSs were no longer needed. And it was sad to see it go. I, I loved it and had fun with it. But I felt, hey, the, the internet's really taken off when it was it was going to be a big deal. And that's what I did. I mean, I was a software developer. And I mean, obviously, I was not going to make my living at this point building BBS software. That just, that just wasn't going to happen. And no matter how much I thought it would be super cool if I made a million dollars making BBS software. I mean, that never really happened for that many people anyway. And I immediately regretted it and regretted it for years and years. Uh, and I tried to replicate the experience of, of BBSing through, you know, massively multiplayer games, um, dialing into MUDs a lot. I did a lot of telenetting into multi-user dungeons that would be running around places, which, you know, in many ways has many of the same experiences that you find on a BBS, but not quite. It was, it was just some similar. So that scratched an itch for a while. After a while, you know, I got into a lot of things, you know, from World of Warcraft and EVE Online and all the big MMOs out there. And they just never did it for me either. What I wanted, what I wanted so much was to get back to something like, you know, a Trade Wars or something. But I just, I just didn't do it for, for so many years. And he embraced the internet, got a job and moved along through the Web 2.0 world. But he couldn't help but feel like something more important was lost when he took his BBS offline. Technology moves too fast. The internet moves too fast for, for so many things. It's hard to remember the history of the internet all by itself. If you look at where we were at, uh, just, just with web browsing, just with websites 10 years ago, I mean, it's ridiculous how quickly we forget, how quickly we lose those those core experiences. And BBSing is even worse because once those BBSs go offline, once you shut down a dial-up BBS, that's it. It's gone. It's it's hard to even search for good screenshots of BBSs. It's 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 a, it's a difficult thing. It goes away, and it's such a critical part of our computing history. And I'm a big computer history guy. I collect and repair vintage arcade equipment, and like this is this is something that I I feel passionately about. So what I wanted was to put up what was essentially a museum slash homage. What what I loved most about BBSing put back online in a way that doesn't require my constant intervention in, in a way that that is low on resources so I can just put it off to the side and let it run and let people really enjoy it for, for what it is and give people the opportunity to not just relive those days but to remember what exactly about BBS's was so great. And then almost more importantly, the kids who are a bunch of script kiddies <laughs> who never played around with a BBS before. This gives them the opportunity to see what their forebearers were doing before 
before Firefox 4 came out, there was, you know, a nice dial-up BBS client with Z modem or Y modem or X modem to download to download software over a 14.4 modem that was dreadfully slow and with a nice colorful animated ANSI interface. <laughs> Nowadays, I run a BBS that is a 20-line Telnet-only BBS running under Arch Linux that is running with Wine and FreeDOS and all sorts of random hackneyed scripts to get it to work. It's, uh, it's running on one of those little uh, Asus Tripoli netbooks, uh, one of the first round of them. So it's this tiny, itty-bitty little machine that cost me $170 to buy, I think, new. And there are other BBSs out there, um, but uh, you know, I wanted I wanted one that I knew I could just keep running for, for the next many, many, many years and just let it run it off to the side on a piece of hardware. It's actually running on an SSD drive, SSD drive uh, with very little RAM. It, it, the, the CPU is actually down throttled, so it runs extremely cool even with no fans. It just sits off to the side and, and runs and hopefully will be running for a long time because it, it is backed up every night automatically using the power of the internet. It's actually backed up to my Dropbox account. I've got a Telnet 20-line BBS uh, running under Linux that's all entirely backed up to a Dropbox account in the cloud and and spread out amongst all my machines every night so it's it's kind of ridiculous I put a, put the BBS back up online last uh, last November I want to say and uh, so it's only been online for you know about five so months or so and I just I put up a little flash client so people could go to my website and just connect through the web page because who installs a telnet client with ANSI capabilities built for you know logging to BBSs nowadays well I, I do but most people don't so I have a little flash client so people can log into it and all that and i think we just we, we passed our four thousandth caller uh, like a, a few weeks back so forty one thousand one hundred and ninety four minutes of activity not including myself which who knows how much that is oh oh since the bbs went live in november which is i mean which dwarfs anything that i ran as a kid and is almost mind-boggling to me that this little bbs that has no files on it there's no message networks going to it it's just some games up and running for people to play old text-based games and people just flock to it so if you if anyone does want to want to connect over to the bbs they, they can do so by telling into bbs.lunduke.com or they can just go over to my website lunduke.com l-u-n-d-u-k-e.com that's just my website over on the left hand side there's a little there's a little bbs section where i have my little homage to bbsing my little historical bit of whimsy along with a little flash terminal you can use to just log in through the website which does a very nice job of emulating all the old ANSI emulations and mostly we play a lot of legend of the Red Dragon and Trade Wars. That's what we do on the BBS. We do it a lot. We have tournaments every now and then, and it's just it's just a fair bit of good fun. It's it's nothing taken far too seriously because it's a BBS, and taking it seriously would be plain silly at this point in life. Who would have thought 25 years ago that we'd still be using BBSs online today? Kind of makes you wonder what'll happen to the web in 25 years. Will it be a little curiosity tended to by devoted fans like Brian? Or will the next big thing knock it into obscurity? It's hard to say. But we can only hope that the web's legacy will be protected by people as dedicated, knowledgeable, and geeky as Brian Lunduk. Modern BBS Admin. Brian's website is lunduke.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Brian Lunduke. Brian spelled with a Y. Welcome back. 
I want to take a second to talk to you about uh, one of the most important text files ever published online anywhere. It's called The Conscious of a Hacker, and it's also known as the Hacker Manifesto, and it's the statement of purpose for hackers, white hat and black It was written in January of 1986 by a computer security hacker who went by the name of The Mentor, and he was a member of the hacker groups Ecstasy Elite and Legion of Doom. Now, the Hacker Manifesto, I mean, if you were a BBS kid or anywhere on the internet in late 80s, early 90s, you knew about the Hacker Manifesto. It was this and the Anarchy Cookbook, basically, were the two must-have documents you needed to download. It's also shown up in a lot of popular culture. It was featured in the movie Hackers. Uh, There was a copy of it in the CD case for the computer game Uplink. And the author himself, the mentor, actually gave a reading of it at a conference called H2K2. I'd like to go ahead and read a little section of it for you if I could. This is our world now. The world of the electron and the switch. The beauty of the bod. We make use of a service already existing without paying for what could be dirt cheap if it wasn't run by profiteering gluttons, and you call us criminals. We explore, and you call us criminals. We seek after knowledge, and you call us criminals. We exist without skin color, without nationality, without religious bias, and you call us criminals. You build atomic bombs, you wage war, you murder, cheat, and lie to us and try to make us believe it's for our own good. Yet we're the criminals. Yes, I am a criminal. My crime is that of curiosity. My crime is that of judging people by what they say and think, not what they look like. My crime is that of outsmarting you, something that you will never forgive me for. I am a hacker, and this is my manifesto. You may stop this individual, but you can't stop us all. After all, we're all alike. Now, I've included a link to the Hacker's Manifesto in the show notes. You should definitely give it a read. It's a very powerful document, very heartfelt, and I think still applies to hacker and just general internet user alike today. And speaking of hackers, uh, why don't we check out and see what we have going on in this week's progs? And we're back with another illuminating edition of Progs. I have another two Progs for you this week. First off, if you listened to our brief history of the internet, you remember me talking about Gopher, which was basically the World Wide Web before the World Wide Web. Well, not a lot of people know this, but there's still a great archive out there of Gopher material. If you want to take a look through all this old material, a lot of it's still relevant, at least from a historical perspective. Uh, you can go to bit.ly slash gopher archive, and you'll come to the Floodgate Gopher HTTP gateway, where you can uh, search by keyword, you can go down... Uh, through the levels of the domains to find stuff that is interesting to you. And overall, just a really great tool if you want to check out some of the old gopher stuff. My second prog isn't necessarily internet-related, but it's just too cool not to mention. This is a guy's personal website. It's The website's michaelv.org. 
And basically the way he set this up, it's a Windows 3.1 emulator. Uh, now it's not pitch perfect how Windows 3.1 was to navigate, but you can play Minesweeper. You can open up Notepad, type in a document, and save it to your hard drive. Um, you can also browse the internet using the internet browser. And you can actually go to any website through here. Although, you know, if you go to a modern website, it's going to look modern. It won't look like it would have on uh, Windows 3.1. One of the really cool things is, is when you go into the individual programs and go to like file open or if you open up the command prompt and type dir to get a directory listing, it's all of the various things for his website, you know, his photos, his blog, etc. So a very cool website design and also a very fun way to relive the glory days of Windows 3.1. Welcome back. For this week's old website of the week, we're going to go to a site. It's not actually very old. The first copy I could find of it was from 2007, but oh, it looks old. It's uh, the uh, official webpage to get tickets for Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. You can find it at wheeljeopardytickets.com. And this is an actual by Sony Entertainment site. There's an animated uh, GIF background with stars. There's a little spotlight animated GIFs. And it's just like horrendously, horrendously laid out. And actually, if you go scroll down to the bottom and go to uh, Johnny Gilbert, the announcer, uh, his official website, same thing. Looks like it's straight off of GeoCities. Like, I don't, I don't know who they paid to put this website up, but it was definitely too much. Uh, like I said, you can find that at wheeljeopardytickets.com, and you can also check out the oldest version of the page, which is the exact same as the new version, at bit.ly slash site. And with that, episode five is at an end. You can get all our past episodes at oldwideweb.org or by searching for Old Wide Web in iTunes. You want to be on the podcast, right? Well, just shoot us a one- to two-minute audio file with your earliest online memory at oldwideweb at gmail.com, and I'll use you in a memory allocation segment. Any story ideas, feedback, suggestions can all be sent to oldwideweb at gmail.com as well. Or you can go ahead and just use the contact form on the website. Finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at oldwidewebpod, and you can follow me at Bill Meeks. Well, unless I get distracted with old AOL chat logs, I'll see you back here next week on the Old Wide Web.